everyone, and welcome to Through the Bible with Dr. Michelle and Friends. My name is Dr. Michelle, and I welcome you to our second session in this, our revelatory walk through the pages of Scripture. We are on a journey, a journey of learning more about who God is, and in turn, learning more about who we are, and this grand story of humanity, and the plan of salvation that God has set in place for us. So I, I pray that during this time, you know, your heart would be open, your mind would be open, and that you would be curious to find out who this God is and what he has done and is doing for our lives. So today we are going to be looking at the book of Genesis and specifically chapters 1 through 15. So when we talk about Genesis, we must first start with that it is a book about beginnings. The beginnings of creation, the beginnings of humanity, and the beginnings of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And he lets us know the part that Israel has to play in his grand scheme. And so we are, we are invited into this narrative about all types of beginnings. And in the beginnings, we learn about the purpose and the meaning and the significance to why these people, why this world, why this nation is here on the earth. Traditionally, Moses has been taken as the author of this book, and this book has 50 chapters and 1,533 verses. Genesis is foundational to understanding the rest of the Bible. Especially as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to know what Genesis and the Old Testament in its entirety um, says because it informs our relationship with Jesus and helps us to see the impact and the significance of what he has done and how God has woven his story through all of the pages of the scriptures. So we must have an understanding about Genesis and especially about beginnings because there are different theories out, different um, viewpoints and perspectives, but he wants us to have his, his viewpoint, his truth of how this world began. So in this book of Genesis, we find intriguing, unique characters and we see real people ordinary people and how their lives of faith come about and what it looks like to walk with and believe in God. So Genesis is important. The actual title, right, Genesis, uh, it comes from a Greek word, which is genosios, which appears in the, um, the Greek, Christian Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in a different context, you get the meanings of birth or genealogy or history of origin. So all of that to say, to say that Genesis is about beginnings, it's about history, and we need to know more about it, right? So most theologians, when they look at the book of Genesis, they divide into two parts. From chapters 1 to 11, it talks about the, God's relationship with humanity. So we see creation, we see um, you're going to meet Adam and Eve, you're going to meet Noah, and how he works with basically um, humanity on a whole. And then the second part 
is from chapters 12 to 50, where you see Abraham and his descendants and how God begins this, this nation through this one person that he called to follow him very closely. So we see the two parts, first Genesis 1 through 11 about humanity, and then we see Genesis 15 through 12 through 50 about Abraham and his descendants. Now today, as we look at our study, we're going to start off with God's relationship with humanity on the whole, and we're going to just touch on the beginning of God's relationship with Abraham, and that's going to set us up for our further study. So in it, we're going to see that there are a few main characters that you will meet. You're going to meet Adam and Eve. Maybe you've heard about that. Maybe you know a little bit about them. You're going to hear, meet Adam and Eve. You're going to meet Noah, and you're also going to meet Abram and Sarai. Now, these are just the main characters. There's many, many, many other characters involved in these chapters, but we're going to just highlight a few for the sake of time. So let's get started. As we begin, we're going to look at how God created the world, the cosmos, and everything that we can see and which we can't see yet too, and how humanity is started. So in the beginning, it starts off with God creating. So when we are introduced to God, we see him as the creative force. He is there, there is chaos, there is void, and he speaks, and whatever he speaks comes into existence. God is the only one that is able to create out of nothing or with nothing to start. So he speaks and it comes into existence. Now, there are different theories out there as to the creation of the world, creation of people, now, the Bible doesn't go into the specifics as to when they talk about days, how long the periods are, 24 hours or a period of time. There are a lot of theories, a lot of different camps. But the one thing the Bible is very, very clear about, which we need to know, is that it starts with God. He is the divine intelligence. He is the the divine architect. He is the one who brings forth everything that we see, especially life in humanity. So it all starts with God. He is the starting point. He is the beginning. He is the genesis of everything that we see. And that is what we need to know. That is the information he gives to us that God created and he is at the start of everything. So over seven days, we see creation take place. From, Gen from Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 2, around verse 3, we see the different, the, the outline of an orderly creation. So day one, light. He, he calls forth light and light appears. So now we have the distinction between light and darkness. Day number two, there is sky and there is water. So the waters, you know, they, they, they are there now. And the, you see the vapors separated. Day number three, you have the sea and you have earth, dry land, and waters. The waters are gathered, and vegetation also comes. Then we have day four. He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they are there to simply mark the days for us, day and, eat, day and night, so we have, we're able to see days and seasons and years. Day five, we come to fish and birds. He creates them to fill the waters and the sky. And on day six, he creates the animals to fill the earth. And now all of this is created, the animals, the birds, the vegetation, the, the light, photosynthesis, everything is there. He creates man. 
But man's a little different because he doesn't just speak it and it appears. He actually forms man from the dirt and then breathes into man the breath of life. So we see from that that humanity is a little bit different from the animals and, the, and everything else that's on this earth because men and women are made in the image of God. And they are given the mandate to care for the earth and to commune with God. That's day six. Day seven, God rests and declares that everything that he has made is very good. So over six days, God does, does a lot of work. And on the seventh day, he sanctifies it and he hallows it and is it a day of rest. So rest is part of the creation account. Now, God creates men and women in his own image. So one right off the bat, we see that our worth and our significance and the value of our life is already secured because we are made in the image of God. Nothing else can make us less worthy or um, take away the value from our lives. No one else defines it except for God because we were created in his image and in his likeness. We were, we were there to be the, the reflection of the glory of God with the ability to love and to feel and to think and to choose. This is important. That's what sets us apart from the rest of creation. And he gives mankind this this mandate. After he says that he's going to make men in his own image and according to his likeness, and they will have dominion over all the fish and everything on this earth, we read in verse 27 of chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God has given unto mankind the authority to have rulership over this earth. And we can do that. We have the capacity to do that because we are made in his image and his likeness. So when he made mankind, he made them perfect, fulfilled, and complete. God has done a wonderful thing in creation, and this is how it starts off. But then something happens. As we cross over into chapters 2 all the way to 5, we realize that their relationship, Adam's relationship with God changes. Now, God has so set it up that he creates all of of the world, everything that would be needed before he makes Adam. And he and he makes Adam and he puts him in a place where he all of his needs are basically taken care of and he has open relationship with God. And when God sees that there's no one who is comparable to him, no one who can be a help me to him, not even in the greatness of the animals, he makes woman or Eve, who will now become that companion for Adam. So together they are able to receive God's love and also share love within uh, among the both of them. So we see that they are truly together in unity, completion, experiencing love on different levels, the greatest in their relationship with their creator and father who is God. But one day Eve is in the garden and you know she is she's just moving around and there comes a serpent. Now, this is a serpent who is under the influence of Satan. And he comes and he 
wants to engage Eve in conversation to cause her to doubt the goodness of God. Because God had said to Adam and Eve, I'm putting you in this garden, the Garden of Eden, and everything is for you to enjoy. Just listen, everything is for you. There's a tree of life and there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat anything you want from any tree you want except for that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's really truly God's love gift to us, to give us choice. You know, he lets us know that, hey, all this for you, if you choose to disobey me and eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will happen is that you will die. So they know this. God has given them instruction. But when the serpent comes and engages even conversation, he makes her doubt the goodness of God and wants her to see that she can have good things or she can have more things without God's approval or God's help. So through twisting of words, he's like, if you eat from that one tree, the one tree that God says you can't eat from, then you're not going to die, right? And all of a sudden, he starts to see this tree and realize that, hey, this is good. This is good for eating. This is pleasurable to my eyes. It will make me wise. It will give me all these things that apparently God hasn't given her. So she eats of the tree and she gives Adam to eat of the tree as well. And as they eat of it, their eyes open, not in a good way, and they realize that they're naked. Through their disobedience, sin has come in. So now God comes and he wants to just continue that beautiful, unbroken relationship with them. But Adam is hiding. They realize they're naked and so they, they, they cover themselves with fig leaves. and They hide from God. So God asks Adam, where are you? And, and Adam begins to explain to him, well, we were naked and so we hid ourselves. And God's like, who told you you were naked? And Adam and Eve realize that they have truly disobeyed God. Now, in this course of this, this discussion between God and Adam and Eve, we see that God is still a good God because he put something in place to, yes, judge their disobedience and punish their sin, but also to redeem them. So in chapter 3 of Genesis... The Lord, in speaking to the woman, says, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there is a plan to redeem and restore Adam and Eve in the justice of God. And Satan, who influenced this, the serpent, will also be defeated. A time will come when the seed of the Lord will defeat the evil one. The only thing is in the process, he will also incur some harm. He will be harmed in the process, but he will be victorious over the evil one. So this is the exchange that God has with Adam and Eve and with the serpent. And then for, in their best interest, God removes them from the Garden of Eden. And there's a reason why. 
Because if God left them in the Garden of Eden with the Tree of Life and they ate of it, they would be forever, they and all of us would be forever in that sinful state. So to give them a chance, to give them an opportunity to be redeemed, he had to remove them from that place. And now as a consequence of their sins, they have to go and work the ground and begin to toil for that God was already making available to them at the beginning. So they leave um, the Garden of Eden and their life begins outside of it. So as life goes on, they have children. And the first child they have is Cain. And the second child they have is Abel. Now Cain is the firstborn and he becomes a farmer. And Abel, the secondborn, becomes a shepherd. There comes a time when they are to bring a sacrifice, a worship onto the Lord. And Cain brings the first of his um, produce, which would be vegetables, fruits, and all of that. And Abel brings the first of his work, which is uh, an animal, animal sacrifice. In Abel's sacrifice, there was a shedding of blood. Now, when God sees these sacrifices or these first fruits, Cain, who brings produce and vegetation, his is rejected and Abel's is accepted. What happens there is Cain is angry and jealous at his brother. God is like, listen, if you do well, you will be blessed. He gives an opportunity to, to get it right, but he doesn't take it. What does Cain do? Cain kills his brother Abel. So it, so God speaks to Cain and lets him know that that is not what's supposed to happen. And because of that, Cain is not blessed. He's actually driven out from his family, home or area, and he has to do life as a nomad. And the, he is basically cursed because he chose, first of all, to disobey God and secondly, to murder his brother. But we are not without hope because Adam and Eve have another child named Seth. And from Seth's line, they begin to call on the name of the Lord. Although the descendants of Seth began to call on the name of the Lord, the world becomes increasingly more evil. There is deceit and wickedness and murders and different things on the, the, on the earth that do not please the heart of the Father. And he is seeing all that is happening and he is not pleased with them. So it says that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There is evil all around, and this was not the design that God had in mind. This was not the relationship that he, he, des he decided to have with his people. He wanted to have open fellowship with them, being their God, but they continually rebelled, continually walked in sin, and just disobeyed God. 
And so God looks at it and said, this is not what I'm have I, I had in mind. And so I'm going to start over. I want to destroy everybody. But it says right there that there was a person, Noah. Noah who found grace in the sight of God. Noah was righteous in his generation and he did that which pleased God. So God gave Noah instructions to build an ark, to build a large ship that would house Noah and his family and animals, and they would be the ones that would be saved from the incoming, the upcoming flood. This ark that Noah built took 120 years to build. So there was opportunity for other people to, you know, to repent and to turn from their wickedness, but they didn't. But we see Noah's commitment to obedience. And he followed through with all that God has asked him to do, to the specific instructions. So the time came when the ark was done and Noah and his family, including his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, they went into the ark. And for 40 days and 40 nights, the rains fell. So much water was on the earth that everything Every person, every animal, everything was destroyed. Now, Noah and his family were in the ark for approximately a year. And even when it came to the close to the ending of the year, he sent, you know, a raven out and, an, uh, and a dove out to see if the waters had re receded and if there was any dry land. But he did not leave the ark until God told him it was time. So when it was time... Noah and his family came out and Noah built an altar onto the Lord. There's a sacrifice and built an altar onto the Lord. And the Lord is pleased with Noah's worship. And in chapter 8, verses 21, it says, Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So God is pleased with Noah's behavior, with Noah's sacrifice, and he makes this promise to Noah. So Noah is in a place where God commands him once again to replenish replenish the earth, be fruitful, and to multiply, and to do the things that, you know, God is asking him to do, to reestablish humanity on the earth. And with this, this mandate that God gives Noah, he also makes this covenant, and he says to him in chapter 9 of Genesis from verse 8, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant, so this deep contract agreement, right, with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so he makes his covenant with Noah and his descendants, and he gives a sign of the covenant, which is the rainbow. So every time we see the rainbow, we are reminded of this covenant, this promise that God has made, that he will not again destroy the earth by water. So Noah 
and his family are being fruitful and they are multiplying. And one of the things that Noah does is that he built, he plants a vineyard, right, in this new territory that he has. And one day when he's enjoying the fruit of that vineyard, he gets drunk. And in his tent, he's there lying down and he's uncovered. His second son, Ham, goes in and seeing his father naked, comes out and he tells his brother. So most likely he's mocking his father's behavior. But there's a difference in behavior with Noah's two other sons, Shem and Japheth. So Shem and Japheth, what they do is they take a cloak and they put it on their shoulders and they walk in backwards to cover their father so that they do not see his nakedness, right? And when Noah wakes up, he knows what has happened. And Noah says to them that he will always serve his brothers, Shem and Japheth. And this is important for us to know for what happens later on. So this is the what happens to the family and then life continues. As life continues, mankind, you know, they've been given this second chance to try again, continue to rebel against God and, and try to place themselves as their own gods in their lives. And we see that account in the Tower of Babel. So they decide to build this monument that will reach up to the heavens, not as a tribute to God who has given wisdom, who has sustained them, and who has just been so good to them, but a tribute to themselves to show what they could do, what they could accomplish. And when God sees it, God's like, no, this is not happening. Because it is not his design for mankind that we become our own gods. And if they try to do that, who knows what else they are going to accomplish with that motivation, not to please God, not to, to want to be a servant of God or a child of God, but to be in their own God, their own way. So God says, nope. He stops them building, and what he does is that he scatters the people, and we say confuses their language, but what he did really was allow each person to have a different tongue, a different language, so they couldn't understand each other. And now we're beginning to see the people begin to spread more across the earth, and now we're starting to see different cultures, different languages, and part of the reason for that is that they would not be so united that they would be stronger in their efforts to rebel against God. So once again, he's done that for our own good. But as we continue through the chapters, the people continue to rebel against God. Are you seeing the consequences of sin? The sin that's, that entered in through the lives of Adam and Eve and their disobedience, their original disobedience, the consequences of people who want to turn away from God. They don't want to serve God. They want to um, set up themselves as their own God. And they also want to kill and murder one another and just do evil to one another. So this is not what God had in mind when he created humanity. I have to put a pause in there. Just remember, though, remember the plan of redemption that he already introduced in Genesis chapter 3 when he spoke to the serpent, that there will be come a time when the people will be redeemed. But right now, they're just walking out um, the, the history of things to get to that point. So from all of humanity, the people are just not following after the way God wants them to. And there's just this inclination naturally to rebel against God. So God turns to one person, 
And through that one person, he would start a nation. There would be descendants who would be wholly committed to walking the way that God wants them to walk, walking in faith and trust and dependency on God. So from working with all of creation, now he's moving towards one family. And we are going to meet now Abram. Abram is a descendant from Shem's line. Remember talk about um, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it is from Shem's line that we get Abram. And before Abram, uh, we have Terah. And Terah is a, uh, Abram's father. And he gives birth to Abram, Abram's brother Nahor, and his brother Haran. Now Haran, which is the last born, has a child named Lot, and then he dies. But Abram and Nahor continue to live. They take on wives. Abram takes on Sarai, and uh, Nahor takes on Milcah. And they begin their family, their, their lives and their livelihoods and all of that. Terah moved the family from the Ur of the Chaldees to a place called Haran. And at the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord speaks to Abram. Okay, he speaks to Abram. And he says this in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It says, Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house onto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventeen five years old when he departed out of Haran. Abram is in Haran. His father actually dies. And the Lord speaks to, to Abram and tell him, tells him that, listen, I'm going to do something something very special with you. I'm going to bless you through the earth. Through you, the earth will be blessed. But you got to leave everything that you know here. Leave all your family, leave everything, and go where I'm going to lead you. So one of the things you'll see in the, in the text is that when God speaks to Abram, Abram does what God says. And we see Abram and his wife and Lot and this is nephew, and all of Abram's household left Haran and went down to Canaan. And when Abram goes, one of the interesting things we see about him is that he builds an altar. And that is a sign of his worship, his trust, his faith in God, and also as a memorial of the great thing that God has done in him and what God is going to do to him. So as he goes, he builds an altar and he worships God. Now, as he gets to the place where God has, is, has leading him, a famine arises, right? A really, really great famine arises. So Abraham takes everybody and carries them down to Egypt. There's a very interesting thing that happens when he gets on there because when he gets into Egypt, he realizes that because his wife is so beautiful, that the Pharaoh is probably going to take her for his himself. And as a result of that, Abram probably will lose his life. So he tells his wife, Sarai, listen, tell them that I am your brother and not your husband. 
Now that's partly true because um, it's, history shows that Sarai was his half-sister, but he was, she was also his wife. So they get down to Egypt. She tells um, everyone that she is his sister, and then Pharaoh takes her, and then the Lord plagues Pharaoh's um, house with all kinds of plagues. And then he finds out what is really happening, that he has taken another man's wife. And so Pharaoh releases her and Abram and Sarai and all of their possessions and belongings and people and lot leave Egypt and come back up to Canaan. And Abram returns to the place where he first went when before the, um, the, the famine, famine in the land. But in the place, there are the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So we already know that there's going to be contention, there's going to be some issues, and all that that is happening. So in the midst of all of that, Abram, who's very wealthy, he has lots of livestock, lots of cattle, a lot of sheep, a lot, lot of attendants, a lot of all of that. And then his nephew, Lot, is also very wealthy. There, there comes about an issue between the, um, the people who are in charge of the possessions, the shepherds, within the two camps of Abram and, and Lot, there start to be issues. And especially, too, because there are all the Canaanites in the land. So there's challenges there. So Abram decides what he's going to do is that he is going to separate from Lot. So he says in Genesis chapter 13, from verse 8, uh, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Okay? So Abram, who is the elder one, actually gives Lot the first choice to choose whatever part of the land that he wants. Now, Lot looks up and sees what looks the best, and he chooses to go to another place near Jordan, which is close to Sodom, right? And the report of the, the people of Sodom in the scripture is that they were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And that's where Lot decides to go and live. So Lot moves over to there, pitches his tent with all of his herdsmen, all his cattle, all his family, and Abram dwells in Canaan. And in Genesis chapter 13, we see he says, uh, after Lot separates from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants will also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So there's this encounter between God and Abram. And once again, what does Abram do? He builds an altar and he worships the Lord and he thanks the Lord and blesses the Lord for all that God has said in this covenant that God has made with him. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this is Sarai was barren. So there is no child yet. So they have, they're older, they have no children, and God is making this promise that I'm going to bless you, give you this land for you and your descendants when there is no child. So Abram and Lot are separated, and we're in Genesis chapter 14 now, and the problem happens. You see, there is this powerful king 
Shedor Lam Omer, who is has been served for about 12 years by neighboring kings, right, including the king of Sodom, where Lot resides. And then all these other kings rebel against this powerful king. And so he swiftly fights back. And in the process of that, he captures Lot and all of Lot's family and his possessions and other things as well. Now, when Abram hears about this, he goes to rescue Lot. And he takes with him uh, 318 of his servants, right, who were trained, I guess, trained in battle, trained to fight. And um, with that small, you know, pseudo army, he rescues Lot and uh, the other people who were taken. And the king of Sodom is impressed. Now, I have to remind you, remember what the Bible says about Sodom, that they were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So God... Um, Abram goes to rescue be, rescue Lot, and the king of Sodom benefits, but it's really Abram rescuing his family. That's why he's there. So after this great fight and the, the, um, the great king is defeated, Abram meets a very interesting figure in the scripture. He meets Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, this is the first time we're seeing in the scripture where there is a king who is also a priest, because he, he calls himself that the priest of the Most High God. And there is a, a beautiful moment there where you see two people who are serving the Most High God, Abram and Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Around, there are people who are ungodly doing their own thing, but these two men, right? Melchizedek has no history. We don't know where he comes from. We don't see him again in the scripture, but he comes in as the, the king who serves the most high God, the priest king. And there are different theories. Some theories say that this is the pre-incarnate Christ who came. And also there are theories that say that he was a real respected king, an actual person who just serve the Most High God. The Bible is not specific into the details as his lineage, his history, but what we do see is that he is the first example of a priest king who serves the Most High God, the true God. So Abram gives him a 10% of everything that was taken, his tithe, right? So that's a respect, that's an honoring to um, Melchizedek. Now, they have this moment and then Abram moves on and he encounters the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom, like I said, he is impressed that Abram was able to do this to rescue Lot and the other people who were taken and bring back all the, the all of the spoils. And the king of Sodom wants to bless Abram and give him something. And Abram refuses. And the reason why he refuses is because he says to him in chapter 14, I don't want any way to say that you have made me rich. And so Abram was pointing the, the praise and the honor and the victory to God. The glory had to go to God. And if, if the, the king of Sodom had given him something, he could have said, I am the one who made Abram. But in this journey that God was taking Abram on, no one could take the glory or take the credit for who Abram was becoming. It was God and God alone. So Abram refuses and he returns home. We find ourselves at chapter 50, our last chapter for today. And this action has taken place and Lot has returned home and all his possessions with him. 
And in the beginning verses of chapter uh, 15, God speaks to Abram and says this powerful thing. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And the, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Right. So here's the first thing that God says to him. He quiets his heart because after all this battle, who knows if the, the, the different king would come, kings come back after Abram and all of that. God tells him, listen, don't be afraid. Don't worry. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And then goes on to explain to him that you will have a child and you will have the descendants that I have been speaking to you about. And then they go into this, this, this amazing illustration of covenant where he asks him to, God asks Abraham to get these different animals and to just basically sacrifice them, cut them in half and leave them there. And then you see uh, late in the evening that God passes through with a smoking oven and a burning torch, very symbolic, and he passes through the pieces and he just strengthens in um, Abram's mind that this is a true covenant. You have a sign. My light is here. My consuming fire is here. I am here to give you the sign that everything that I have spoken will come to pass. You will be blessed. You will have an heir and you will have descendants. It's too many to, to count coming from you. So he could take courage and be at rest and continue to trust in God because God would do exactly what he said he would do. So there we are at the end of chapter 15. Yes, there has been much happening in the last few chapters. We see from the beginning of creation through Adam, Adam's children. We see um, Noah. We see Noah's children. We see Abram. This is where we are right now before we even get to Abram's child. And so before we wrap up today and we wrap up these few chapters that we've started off with, I want to just bring to mind for you once again some of the themes that we're seeing in these chapters 1 through 15. We definitely see, well, first of all, relationship with God. God created us for relationship in His image and in His likeness that we would have a broken relationship with Him. And then when sin entered in through disobedience, we see there's a plan in place, a redemption plan, a salvation plan to restore us to that relationship with him where we could fulfill our mandate to have dominion and leadership on this earth. So we see the theme of relationship. And every time uh, the people on the earth moved away from relationship with God, he set something up to bring them back to him because that's what he desires, close, intimate relationship with his creation. And then we also see the theme of covenant. So God promised and Noah that he would not, uh, you know, destroy the world again with water. He makes a covenant, puts the rainbow, so we have a sign of that covenant. We see with Abram, 
that he lets them know that I'm going to bless you and through the, you, the world will be blessed. He gives them the sign um, with the fire and the torch going through the animals just to really cement in Abram's heart and mind that he has this relationship with God and God's going to use him to do an amazing thing. He even gives him that promise that he's going to have a child before one is on the scene. So we see that that theme of covenant with God. God is in the business of making agreements with people because he wants to, to let them know that he is in it, that he is going to do what he says he's going to do. And yes, of course, it requires obedience, requires faith, it requires trusting in him, but that there is definitely going to have, be something that comes out of this covenant. It's going to have fruitfulness, and you're going to see that God is really trustworthy. So we see covenant, we see promise in these few chapters. We see the theme of obedience and faithfulness. Oh my goodness, obedience is important because when you don't obey God, you sin. And there are disastrous consequences of sin. For Adam and Eve, that sin has followed all of humanity. For the people who were rebelling before Noah, they lost their lives. We see even, even um, later on, you'll see through Abram that the people around Abram, when they don't obey God, there are consequences for that. So it's letting us know for here and now that obedience is key. As we obey God, we will keep ourselves from walking in sin, right? We also see the theme of redemption, how God has a plan. God understands that to make us in his image and his likeness means that we would have choice. But having choice also means that there will be opportunities for us to choose the wrong things. But God is such a great God that he made a plan to redeem us when we made the wrong choice. So all of this shows us how full, how full and how wonderful Genesis is. And we're only up until chapter 15. We have met God, the creator of heaven and earth. The Bible introduces him as Elohim. He is the creative God. And he makes us in community for community. We meet Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman. We learn of their relationship with God. They're, we meet their children, Cain, Abel, and Seth. We see that Cain kills Abel. And so there's a new son, Seth, who has descendants that actually follow God. Then we see Noah. He's the next person on the stage who builds the ark and his family is saved from the great flood. He has children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is also the father of Canaan. And so we know his descendants cause issues. And then from there, we see Abram. Abram, who will be called Abraham soon. Um, but Abram, and through Abram, God is no longer dealing with all of humanity, getting all of humanity to follow him, but he's dealing with one. And through this one will come a family, come a nation, who will be completely committed to the Lord. And then through whom we will see the Messiah come much later on. So there we go. We have come to the end of session number two. Oh, uh, my name is Dr. Michelle, and I'm with you for Through the Word. Join us next week as we go further on in the book of Genesis, and we learn a little bit more about who Abraham is and what this promise of God really looks like as it was unfolded 
in his lifetime. All right, so God wish bless you and keep you. May you continue to encounter his word. May your life be transformed for the glory of his name.